Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the life and work of the great American author John Steinbeck. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. Empire of Scientism, the disquieting conspiracy and inevitable tyranny of Scientocracy. Tech bondage, slavery of the human spirit. Human entrance to transhumanism, machine merger and the end of humanity. Plantation of the automatons and most recently a book of poetry called Mystical Murmuration. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, great to see you, my friend. I'm looking forward to the conversation. This will be a bit unusual. We'll be talking about John Steinbeck, who is not particularly known as a person involved in mysticism or, or the paranormal. I think, if anything, I would characterize him as a social justice warrior. Uh, that's fair enough. I think there's a lot of, uh, that would be the view of a lot of people in, in, in many senses. They would focus on his on his work in relation to the downtrodden, in relation to migrant uh, workers. And there is a, a biography called Mad at the World, which focuses on that element of his sense of injustice. But uh, I, I would argue, uh, Jeffrey, that what he does is attempt to come from the other side. And we've talked about this in relation to Yeats. And it does it is relevant in relation to our talk on Steiner, that Steiner emphasizes that if you're just thinking about spiritual things, mystical things, well, then you're in danger. It's a kind of Luciferian trap. And the opposite, where you're, you're, you're too embedded in the material world, is the Aramanic trap. And people like uh, Steinbeck, for me, they attempt to build up from the ground and they attempt, attempt to look at the, the basic relationships. And I, I listened to your talk with uh, Robert Bigelow, which I, I was impressed with in relation to the indication of, of the scope of the spiritual evolutionary process, which I, I largely agree with. Uh, but actually, the most to add to that, the most difficult bit is the bit where we come into human relations and we try and interpret reality in uh, around us in, in the difficult, those difficult areas. And I think that Steinbeck actually provides a framework in his work to indicate the importance of the individual in relation to the group, and in relation to myth and, and magic as well. So th there are elements there that are sometimes missed. Well, let's explore them further. I, I know, for example, from you, it's, I don't think, widely known that he had a close friendship with the great mythologist Joseph Campbell. This is a, a neglected aspect, and, and it helps us to contextualize the wider aspects of Steinbeck. In many ways, 
as a good storyteller, he hid some of the deeper elements of his stories. And sometimes in his letters and elsewhere, you see that he was a deeper thinker. So it's important to note that Steinbeck had a, a prior interest in legend. He was particularly driven by the Arthurian saga of legends. And that, that as a boy, he was very interested in that and it never left him. So it made a deep impression upon him. So before he met Campbell, he was embedded in this mythic uh, legendary uh, world and the magical world. So uh, Joseph Campbell came back to uh, America and he, he was in he was in Monterey between 1931 and 1932. He stayed in Monterey. And there's a, a, a triangle or a square, if you like, of, of people there. There's John Steinbeck. There's John Steinbeck's great friend, Ed Ricketts, or the Doc, uh, and Joseph Campbell. Uh, so Joseph Campbell is going in his, his post-academic exploration of where he is going and where his work is going. And he's He's discovering people like Spengler and he's reading about Spengler is very important to him to add to his Jungian perspective and his Joycean perspective and his ideas of myth. So then he, he meets Ed Ricketts and Ed Ricketts is a, a marine biologist who has his own ideas about the philosophy of the world and was the, the biggest influence, perhaps one of the biggest influences on uh, John Steinbeck and one of his great friends. And they were close for for a few months. Uh, Campbell maintained his friendship uh, longer with uh, Ed Ricketts, but there was a problem in relation to the relationship between uh, Steinbeck and Campbell. In that Campbell had some kind of relationship uh, with John Steinbeck's first uh, first wife. He kind of fell in love with her, and that obviously was going to complicate their mutual <laughs> interpretation. Uh, and as Joseph Campbell says, follow your bliss. Well, he did seem to follow his bliss in this scenario. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily good for his relationship with Steinbeck or good for the marriage in the long term, perhaps. But in the period when they were together in a kind of a Camelot, a little a Camelot for a while, this, this recurrent idea of, of certain people coming together for, for a while, they begin to explore the mythic, and Campbell is is is, is adding to Steinbeck's uh, knowledge. Steinbeck is writing a book which becomes in in 1933 uh, to a god unknown. He has already written a book at this stage in 1929 called The Cup of Gold, which has references to Arthurian uh, legends. Uh, they, even Merlin even appears in, in in the book, so it wasn't new to Steinbeck. Now, most people assume that the influence was one way from Campbell to Steinbeck, but really there was a, a mutual influence. And I, I think Campbell has said so in, in a few comments about that particular influence or has indicated that. And in particular, he's seeing before him an artist or a writer who's actually making a living or who started to make a living by turning the mythic into the operational. Uh, so there was, there was uh, an influence uh, between, a, a mutual influence between them. But looking at it a bit closer, when I look at the literature and try to interpret where the sparks were coming from, we also have to consider another Californian resident, which is the, the poet uh, Robertson Jeffers. And he was, the, he was in 1932, he appeared uh, now this is about the same time that this group met. 
he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. So he was very, very respected as a poet and acknowledged. Later, he fell out of fashion, and he fell out of fashion because he didn't support American involvement in the Second World War, and that wasn't, wasn't a popular viewpoint. So he never, he never fulfilled, in some senses, that popularity that he initially started out as. But many of his ideas influenced Campbell, Steinbeck, and Ed Ricketts. Ideas, for example, of breaking through, this idea of a kind of psychological or psychic breaking through, like a metanoia, uh, is there in a lot of uh, their work, all their work. Campbell always referred back to Jeffers. Uh, Steinbeck's work is heavily influenced by this poet uh, and his ideas, as is Ed Ricketts. So he's probably a neglected figure in there. So out of that area that uh, in California, we had this movement which began to look at myth, began to look at myth in relationship to nature and society. So we begin to have this holistic view that goes different paths. So, so, so that connection alone is an important aspect of Steinbeck's involvement in the wider intellectual shape of the world we live in. I suppose it's also fair to say that because he did some of his best work in the midst of the Great Depression, that the ecology, the Dust Bowl, for example, played a, a huge influence in his writing. That's right. And so, so context was very important. So when he starts, he, he needs a scaffolding for his work, and he finds a very scaffolding in myth, for example, and the, that, that, that's right throughout his work. And context becomes very important. So the context of place is important. So Monterey County, uh, the Salinas Valley, Salinas, Monterey, Carmel, Big Sur, all, all that area is critical in relation to his work. But the wider context interfered in his life as it did with everyone's life uh, uh, in a very practical way. Now, he had gone to study at Stanford uh, and he didn't, he didn't graduate. He, he studied literature and other subjects there for, for a long time. Uh, but in parallel to that, he worked, for example, in the fruit fields himself. So he had met many migrants. He'd, he'd done the work himself. He used to buy stories off them as well to add to his collection because he, he's really a storyteller. He's a writer and, and, and a storyteller. And then, of course, we had the the economic catastrophe and the depression, and then we had the dust bowl, and and there's a there's a linkage between them, which led, of course, to the great migrations from Oklahoma and Texas and other places into California. And in the in the early 30s, of course, it was an environmental catastrophe. It was associated in in accordance, if you look at from from Steinbeck's view, it was associated with mechanization. It was associated with this idea of the, if you like, that trope of the machine in the garden. The, uh, and he pointed to the pressure uh, from the banks on farmers to mechanize. And this was a kind of hangover from the First World War when there was a big supply of food. And this continued in a time when that, that need was gone. So the topsoil was removed. And as we know from songs like in Woody Guthrie, so long as it's been good to know you and those ideas of, or stories about Black Sunday when, the, when the, you couldn't see uh, before you because the area turned black with the dust and that went on for a few years. That led to this great exodus uh, across to, to California. So 
that also ties in with the mythic context and ideas of the wasteland. So there was, in some senses, a vindication of this this uh, fascination or idea of recurrence or eternal recurrence of problems in human nature, famine, movement, migration, exodus, hunger. And it was a very dramatic period in the United States history. And of course, that led to federal intervention, which became an important context as well of Steinbeck's work. And on the ecology point, uh, as you, you, you mentioned, that led him to a keen sense of the necessity of uh, dealing properly with the uh, with the environment. He already had this deep love uh, of the environment. When he's he's working and studying with his friend uh, Ed Ricketts, they begin to develop a sense of ecology uh, before other people and in in or consonant with people like Robert Robertson Jeffers, who are seen to be leaders in this in the ecological movement. Uh, he was there explaining about the need to see ourselves in relation to the environment. So partly in a rela- in, in reaction to what happened in the 30s in the Dust Bowl, but also from his own uh, evolution, they emphasized the need to have a proper relationship between the human, the machine, and the environment. So in that sense, in a second perspective, he was, apart from the mythic context, he was also influential in, in, in his, for his contributions to ecology. And people like Rachel Carson and Silent Spring were influenced by Ed Ricketts' ideas. So this is another, another aspect that derived from the context. I gather that in his writings, he was critical of the whole capitalist system. And uh, he saw it, I suppose, in the environmental context as as being sort of out of harmony with nature itself. And there's a very ancient idea going back to the Grail legend that when the ruler is out of harmony, then uh, catastrophes occur. That's right. And... So we have this this legend, uh, it underpins T.S. Eliot and the wasteland, but of course, for Steinbeck, who's interested in this this cycle of sagas, the idea of the Fisher King uh, and this kind of impotent king or the king who doesn't add to a fertile land is is there. And it also comes from the Golden Bough from James Fraser, and he was he was part of this influence of a group called the Cambridge Ritualists who influence ideas of literature and ideas of myth and Campbell would have been may have introduced him to uh, Fraser so out of that he he develops his his sense of magic and how magic and totems and talismans uh, can uh, uh, can influence uh, people as well so he 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 adds that uh, strand, but the the the, the Fisher King uh, appears appears in Irish sagas as well. So it shouldn't be merely confined to the medieval period. But essentially, it's about a barren land and the relationship between the barren land and the king, and this idea that the king has to die, which was an important uh, important aspect in the Fraser's idea of the of the legends. But in simple terms, we could say that it was. It was anticipating an idea that bad governance of land uh, will lead to bad results for people. I mean, I, I think we we can extract that simple lesson from the, the mythic as well. 
Well, I gather there was a distinct political aspect to his work, and, and in fact that he was criticized for it. Uh, in spite of that criticism, his, his books were generally very popular. His books were popular, but they were also burned in Salinas and other, other places. He was, his life was under threat by the, the interests associated with the large agrarian enterprises or the agro business in California. And he was constantly under threat uh, for being a, a communist, which he, he wasn't, uh, but he was sympathetic towards the cause of, 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 of communism uh, or, or the interest or the need to organize labor. So he wrote, for example, in Dubious Battle was one of his, his, his early books in 36, which, which deals with uh, a communist struggle in the context of the uh, migration and organizing labor uh, in California. So we have to remember that uh, the New Deal context, whereby the federal government, uh, after the, pre the Depression, realized that it had to intervene in the economic fabric of a society because it had essentially collapsed. So there was this intervention. And in many ways, uh, as a kind of progressive liberal, he was supporting that intervention. So, for example, in The Grapes of Wrath, uh, one of the things he is supporting is the government camps, the settlement camps in California, uh, which were better than the squatter camps. So in some, you may in, in some terms see it as sympathetic towards uh, the federal governance solution in, in this context, which, which he thought was, was necessary. So I suppose for the communists, he wasn't sufficiently left-wing, and for the other side, he was a communist. He, 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 was, he, he later became very uh, connected to the upper echelons of the, the Democratic Party, the presidents. He was, he was friendly with... Lyndon B. Johnson and Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt came as well to the, to the camps and he supported Adelaide Stevenson and Kennedy invited him to his inauguration. So he was, he was an influential individual uh, in, 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 politi in political terms, maybe too close to politics uh, uh, in the end. But this was, a, this was a period, we remember in the 30s, where in Europe we had massive polarization. Uh, we had the Spanish Civil War, massive death, we had the rise of Nazism and the struggle between communism and, 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 and fascism. So it could have gone different ways. And I suppose his view in some ways was, was a centrist view. But in all that, his, his number one value is to focus on the individual, the dignity of the individual and respect for the individual, which is the, the core element of his work. And after that, he begins to interpret what the the group element is, which is an important aspect. Well, I guess his novels typically show that the, the people he's writing about who are often the uh, dispossessed people of society, people who are uh, not among the elite, who, who are often not even counted uh, as important, he, he's showing that they also live lives of, of dignity and character. Uh. He, he, he may even kind of go further, and this is in relation to the mythic. Sometimes his novels are described as picaresque in relation to the idea of a hero who's not really a hero, going back to Don Quixote and a Spanish kind of trope, as well as being picturesque. Uh, but th there is the, if we look at books like, that are set in Monterey, Tortilla Flat and uh, Canary Row and Sweet Thursday, 
he's, he's celebrating people who are who've fallen through the net of society uh, or the paisanos uh, as they were called developing uh, developing a relationship with uh, people from Native American context, from Hispanic context, from European context, that had fallen through the net in many senses. But not only did he accord them dignity, he saw them in Arthurian terms. So the characters uh, are part of an Arthurian saga uh, round table context. So what he is, is saying is that these mythic constructs operate in all human contexts. And he argued that maybe more so even in some of these contexts, because people that don't have a lot have to rely on each other. Their interrelationships are more important. So it's a kind of counterintuitive view in many senses. But certainly it wasn't a caricature, it was a deep sense of recognition of the dignity of the individual. And in, in some senses, he believed that the individuals in certain what, what you, from your criminological context would have been subcultural contexts, uh, were freer than some of the people that were trapped in organizations. He, he talked about the, the group and corporation man or woman, and, and uh, they were not as free in some senses as some of, some of these people. So yes, the dignity of the individual is a critical aspect that he emphasized again and again, and that was irrespective of, of race or gender or, or social context. You know, and I can't help but notice that we live in a moment in time which is almost reminiscent of the Dust Bowl. As you and I are recording this interview today on the uh, 21st of August, 2023, uh, the very area where Steinbeck lived and wrote and uh, along the California coast in central California is being hit by a hurricane. I think for the first time in my lifetime, a hurricane is hitting the California coast. So uh, something very unusual is happening to the environment right now, uh, reminiscent in, in a way of the Dust Bowl. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is this fear ac across the world at the, at the moment. I mean, if we go back, of course, in Californian history, Jeffers, the poet we talked about, was there when they had the earthquake in 1906. And so, so we have a, a history of, uh, of difficult engagement with the environment. We know about the inherent danger of California. And in many senses, part of the energy comes from this sense that it's on the margin of, of other worlds, literally, uh, in many senses. But the so so the 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 inherent the inherent dangers some of them you know it depends on one's perspective i was in the south of spain uh in the summer uh and it, it certainly is hot but it's it, it was always being hot it was hot when i was there 30, 30 years ago and there's extreme temperatures uh and uh, of course the, the, uh, there's variations but actually the the issues are the issues about our management and what we do in relation to what we have control of. Some things are beyond our control and some things are not. So actually I noticed there as well the same issues. You could see the, uh, if you looked hard enough, you could see the migrant labor issues, uh, get a sense of the exploitation of cheap mig uh, migrant labor still continuing today. And in that is the issue of the plantation of food for mass metropolitan uh, markets and again, the impact that that can have on the environment. So 
in in relation to areas that we have choice choice over the same issues persist the same issues about governance the same issues about choices and choices we make because in in in, in all of this we there's always somebody else to blame there's always some someone else that we can point at but i i suppose what some of these ecologists we're talking about is about our own role and our own participation and our own interaction and what what we can actually do in the context what we're responsible for and that may be uh, in small domains about uh, again the 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 positive of focusing on the individual is also the positive opportunity of the individual in relation to things that they have control over in relation to the environment in relation to solving some of these issues in relation to, to, to crucial things like our relationship with the soil that's not a very it may not be a great topic for a lot of people, but it's a critical one for our existence. So. Well, Steinbeck won a Pulitzer Prize. He won a Nobel Prize. I gather that uh, e- even though his stature amongst literary f- literary figures in the United States is uh, pretty much at the pinnacle, uh, at, at the time, these prizes were controversial. People didn't see him necessarily as a great writer. Uh, no, and it, it, that view persists today. There's, there's a recent book called Steinbeck's Imaginarium, and it, it, the, the writer who has written about Steinbeck uh, argues that he's still not taken seriously in the academy. So, so this view persists. For some reason, they don't take him seriously. In some ways, it may be because his technique is so good that he hides the complexity of it. Some other people, some people, don't like his engagement with the groups that he engaged with, with the issues he engaged with. Uh, so so that persists. He was always uh, popular in other countries. He was popular in Europe. He was popular in Eastern Europe. He was popular in Russia. He went to Russia and he wrote with, with Robert Kappa and he wrote a book, a, a Russian journal, one of the kind of early writers uh, to go there after the war. Uh, and he was he was massively popular around the world for his identification uh, uh, with some of these issues, but still, he's not regarded in many senses. And at the time, as you indicate, at the Nobel, after he got the Nobel Prize, there were articles saying that he didn't deserve it. And uh, I mean, there's even subsequently in the Swedish Academy, they said they weren't that sure that year. But uh, so it, it's 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 unfair to him. He 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 was a shy man. He may may have preferred not not to get it. He got many accolades. He was. Uh, despite his arguments about wealth and that he he was very well off, he sold loads of books. He was remarkably successful, remarkably popular. And sometimes, when when someone is popular, it's not seen to be consistent with literary uh, uh, credibility. Uh, but he created characters that are still popular today, and you can see it in music. Bruce Springsteen, etc. The ghost of Tom Joad, reference back to the Grapes of Wrath. These characters kind of live on, and they have a, a kind of mythic element uh, themselves. But there is still that reluctance to embrace him as a a various a, a very serious thinker. Although there are books written about his him and moral philosophy, and 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 people are looking deeper at the um, at, at at the positive aspects he contributed in a wider sense. I wonder, James, if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to him personally. Why is Steinbeck uh, an important figure for you, given your body of work? 
I started reading them in Dublin. Now, I, 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 wasn't, I didn't have to read them in school, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of school kids are introduced to, to them in school, and I think that's difficult for people when they have been to approach them later on. But uh, I was attracted to his uh, poetic descriptiveness, his ability to encapsulate uh, something in poetic, uh, in, in poetic uh, ideas. And in, in that book that I mentioned about Steinbeck, the Imaginarium, it's argued that he was very much influenced by quantum theory and by science and that he integrated this into his t technique. So that's not something that's going to be obvious. So what he was able to do was create, for me, an image of these places in California that I hadn't been and didn't go until uh, a long time after. So he was able to describe the environment and make these people uh, come true. And in many senses, I think he was very influenced by Robinson Jeffers. The themes, for example, Jefferson has a poem, a famous poem about the Rowan Stallion. And uh, we see the Red Pony coming up in relation to uh, Steinbeck. And Steinbeck was very good at symbolism because of his interest in magic and totems and talisman. He was, he was very good at taking a symbol and working with it. So he worked with the moon, for example, which is significant. He wrote a book called The Moon is Down about occupation of a city uh, in, in Europe, uh, which was relevant to people who were occupied under the Nazis during the Second World War. And this, the, the moon comes up, it comes up in the cup of gold. In fact, Maryland says to, uh, to Henry Morgan, who becomes a pirate, that you look at the, um, the moon as if it was a cup of gold that you can consume. Uh, so this, he, he takes an idea and he uses it. Now, this is, this is consistent with Yeats's idea of the power of symbols. It's what Yeats is describing um, magic to be. And Yeats was a big influence on Jeffers and he was a big influence on Steinbeck that way, directly uh, and indirectly. So Jeffers is on the Caramel Coast building his hawk tower and building his tower in kind of reference to the work of, of Yeats in, in many senses. So I could recognize elements in, in Steinbeck. He was referring to motifs, to, to ideas, and he was capturing in poetic form uh, in, 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 simple, in simple words, in, in kind of that uh, positive American uh, reduced style, a spare style, a spare style, uh, an indicative sense of a, a different place and a different subculture and a different perspective, a different way to look at, uh, at say, subcultures, for, for example. Um, and then there were central ideas, which later I realized were very important. So uh, Ed Ricketts wrote Between Pacific Tides, and, and him and Ed Ricketts went on a an excursion which became the Sea of Cortez and the log from the Sea of Cortez. And Ricketts also brought Joseph Campbell up to Alaska on another excursion. Uh, and uh, in, in that context, we had a few motifs which are very important. And for me, it be, uh, I suppose it, it was consistent with my interest in the foreshore. I believe that that intertidal zone is a, is a very, very important symbol and a very, very important motif. Uh, because the, the intertidal zone reveals another world. It's from that intertidal zone that humans have learned about some of the secrets of the sea. It enables them to see a different di dimension. It enables them to prepare for moving into a different di dimension. 
in, I believe that it, there's a deeper kind of motif that's ingrained in the universe that comes to that intertidal zone. It's a suggestion of interdimensionality. So in your work about parapsychology, uh, you you are in that zone in a different context. And this is what this is what Newton said that he was like a boy playing with pebbles on the strand. There was a reference as well to this common idea that there is an in-between zone and that idea of in-betweenness. And it's there that you begin to discover the elements that help you to understand the, the next dimension. So w w when you're talking about space exploration, all the language of space exploration is about craft, it's about ships, it's transposing the thing that we know about, that interdimensionality. So, so that motif, uh, that study about the intertidal zone, how significant it was, and how also that in that, they often mention about the tide pools, that in the tide pools you could see mirrors of social context. You could learn about not just yourself, but the interrelationship. And he also in that, he also in that anticipates some of the areas I'm interested in relation to natural philosophy. He was a natural philosopher. So what he's demonstrating, and Ed Ricketts as well, and Campbell, is the type of natural philosophy or science that existed before it split in 1833 uh, with uh, Hewell and Coleridge, that dispute which led to the, idea, the modern idea of the scientist. Coleridge would have seen himself as a natural philosopher, but he couldn't be this new scientist because it was too reduced. And Coleridge's view of what science was was consistent with Goethe, that you had to participate in the thing. You had to understand the phenomenon uh, in context. So this is what Steinbeck mentions, although he's not a scientist, he is a, a natural philosopher. You have to understand things. You have to understand things in context. You can't decontextualize them. And that's part also of the approach to understanding the eco ec ecological problem, that we can't decontextualize them, that things we do that may seem unrelated to these big issues uh, may be related to them. We have to understand our embeddedness in, uh, in the environment. So I, I would say he gave me an interest in California. Uh, he, he vindicated the power of poetic passages. Uh, he uh, vindicated certain motifs and symbols or uh, arose interest in me, in particular the foreshore, contributed towards that. Uh, and he also, uh, and he demonstrated the power of magical thinking in relation to uh, viewing the real world I, i'd say they were they were some of the 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 issues uh, and uh, and finally therefore when i come to 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 people like philip k dick you're looking at california from a different lens uh, steinbeck is looking at what he is he had an idea of non-teleological thinking about looking at what you see around around you which is very much american pragmatism william james and he was also adding into this a stream of American trans transcendentalism. So uh, those those were things which are uh, which I identify with, and I think is important. He doesn't answer the questions. He doesn't answer some of the big questions, or he doesn't engage in them even. But he's he's building up from the ground so that as we're looking at the big issues, uh, as we're looking at the great things as you have been doing, and the great mystical issues. We still have to connect that to the ground level, and we still have to find those meeting points. And I think that's what that's that's where Steinbeck is pointing to to look at where we stand in order to be to to form this pillar to the heavens.
Well, he lived and worked as a migrant farm worker himself. So he, he got to know those people firsthand. The, the people who, uh, are, are ignored just as we might ig- ignore, as you point out, the life on the seashore that just beneath the surface, the octopi and other, other animals that hang out near the beaches. Uh, Yates, tried to, I think in his poetry, as you've described it, to sort of recreate the ancient esoteric culture of Ireland through through his own poetry, the, the mystical culture, the folk mystical culture of Ireland. But I, I don't necessarily get that from Steinbeck. He, I, I don't see him trying to uh, reawaken a sense of magic. If you look at, well, if you look at, say, East of Eden, uh, what he's trying to do is trying to, I suppose, reimagine what was in the imaginarium of the people. So in many senses, the people who are coming west were coming from a familiarity of the biblical context. So he's looking back to Cain and Abel, for example, and trying to reinterpret and reapply that. And if you look at what other contemporary thinkers now are doing, like Jordan Peterson does the same thing with Cain and Abel. So Steinbeck was there before him reinterpreting and reapplying some of these things and saying, let's look at these myths uh, myths or the biblical truths, if you like, for some people in a, in, in a different context. Uh, in, in relation to magic, we see in To a God Unknown in 1933. Now, this was the book that was influenced most by Campbell, uh, perhaps at an early stage. And we see him trying to infuse a kind of druidic sense, uh, a Celtic sense, into the, the, the character, into California. Um, and in many senses, when he applies myth, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to success for the character. Now, the, the more I think about that, I, I'm wondering, is he exposing the limitations of myth? Because when Jung says about to, to find out what myth you're living by, there has... We have taken that to mean that everyone can have a private mythology, uh, but that private mythology doesn't really accord with the idea of a, a communal idea, something springing from a, a, a collective unconscious. So there's a there's a bit of a dis, disjuncture there. So, in terms of say your uh, your work, we we. We, we don't necessarily see some of the uh, preoccupations or, 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 or issues uh, in his work. But again, if you look at his life, we see, for example, uh, he, he lived in a house in Los Angeles, which had some kind of poltergeist phenomenon. He was familiar with the, those things. Uh, there is some talk about Ouija boards that comes up in the, in the biography. So he was certainly open to the spiritual context. But He's in the same position that Yeats and the other writers and the other modernists were in, that they realize that the, the old order is changing and there's a new mythology or a new way of looking at the world that has to emerge, which is related uh, to the individual. And in, in, in many ways, they're not being prescriptive about that. They're, they're trying to leave that issue open. He does, for example, in all his works, talk about this idea of the glory uh, the idea of some kind of epiphany, some some metanoia, some breakthrough that that that's there in in a lot of his work. So there's a there's a deep rooted sense of personal peace that that must come through, which 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 accords with with, with the mystical uh, perspective. But he he's he's kind of careful not to 
explain what the context of that is. We do see indications, which I'm not sure how representative it is of his view in in works like The Grapes of Wrath, where the preacher is is talking about uh, the effectively the oversoul, the Emerson's idea of uh, all the souls being united. And the preacher has gone through a transformation whereby he believes that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of uh, of mankind, humankind. So that it's it's a transposition of some theological ideas into an idea more like uh, the idea of the Geist or, or something else. So he's playing with those ideas. I don't know that he ever commits himself to uh, explaining the, the the connection. But so so what I'm not sure about is where he is in the end. Although he, he comes from an Episcopalian background. He didn't really develop that, and there's a famous incident of in, in a, a church in Berkeley where he, when he's 19, where he stands up and opposes the the preacher because he didn't disagree or he disagreed with him. So he had this. He he, he wasn't too much into the uh, organized religion, but he he did have a, a deep sense of of spirituality, which for him was manifest in, in the. Uh, the magical and the, uh, and uh, the magical and the mythic, uh, but whether it deals with the aspect of the or develops the aspect of the mystical, uh, I'm not sure. But I, I, he, he's talking really at a, a level before mysticism, a, a level of of cognitive engagement with the world and how we deal with that aspect, how we work things out, uh, and they they're kind of uh, they're unrelated or, or, or not necessary coterminous with mysticism. So I guess you could say that he expressed a, an earthiness in in his work. And I under the impression that uh, toward the end of his life, he became uh, publicly an agnostic. And I, I wonder if if that isn't sometimes a a pattern that people who are very focused on the earthy aspects of reality maybe have a, a harder time of uh, let's say recognizing the divinity within themselves. Well, this is this is a very interesting. Uh, this this is a crucial or the crux of the matter. Uh, I, I I depart from my sympathy to him when he becomes very involved with the U.S. government and and critics of him would would say that he was too aligned with the government during the, the Vietnam uh, War. Unlike Jeffers, who had, had demonstrated kind of a, a pacifist perspective in relation to the Second World War even, the um, Steinbeck was able to uh, to go along with his patri- patriotic sense and his, his son has gone off to Vietnam and he's right he, he had been writing speeches for politicians and he did go and visit Vietnam and he, he had been he had been in Salerno. He had been. He'd seen action as a kind of embedded reporter, if you like, during the Second World War, and he had wrote a book called "Bombs Away" in 1942. Uh, so he could be accused of being involved in the war machine in a soft kind of way, supporting the gold and not being sufficiently critical, which raises the question about whether his ultimate myth was insufficient, whether he didn't see the the wider myth. And in many senses, I wonder whether, to what extent, the stories about Kennedy and the description of the Kennedy era in terms of Camelot was related to to the Steinbeckian uh, viewpoint. But the problem really goes back to 
Robertson Jeffers, in my view. Now, this, this is a very interesting aspect of the whole story because Robert, Robinson Jeffers, as a poet uh, in the 20s and, and earlier, began to understand the, 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 the destructiveness of the machine. And he saw the destructiveness of the net. The net was a symbol for him, which, which 100 years later has become very important. And he, he has a, a poem called The Purse Sainers about catching sardines in Monterey, I think, uh, at night in the nets, and he likens it to the human, and he likens it to the humans in a city being captured in a net. So it was, it was, it was very, very clear and perspicacious, and it anticipated many of the motifs that, uh, and concerns that, that, that I had had. And his identification of the problem, Jeffers' problem, uh, identification, uh, led to a view that we had to under, underestimate or, or, or de-emphasize the significance of the human in the world. And he called that inhumanism. It didn't mean that you be inhuman, but it, it meant that humans shouldn't be regarded as significant as they are. Now, this is, this is really an anticipation of what became post-humanism in, in, in more contemporary context. Again, Jeffers is there. And there is this problem that if you see things as purely about nature, as purely biological, it's this bit of a, a question mark I'd have about Ricketts as well and Joseph Campbell. That really, they were saying that the collective unconscious, in many senses, is a biological function. And now, if you say, which they don't necessarily do, but if you say it's a purely biological function, it's purely an evolutionary process. Well, then you're you're not necessarily you're, you're not in a position to form this connection with all the things that you talk about in relation to parapsychology and mysticism and spirituality and, and, and that. So you can have a psychic, psychological, mythic, magical description that doesn't actually connect with other worlds. Now, the mystical position is different. The mystical position gener generally argues that we are receptors in some way, that we have a receptive function that opens us up to other intelligences and consciousnesses. Now, that's, that's the difference. That's the real dividing line uh, there. And in, in many senses, uh, there is a demythologization of God, which makes it difficult for people to, to believe in anything beyond nature as God or humans as God or societies as God. And, and, and that's the difficulty for me because it, it doesn't accept as real, as ontologically real, those things that uh, we talk about in relation to, that, that arise on the foreshore of consciousness on, on perception. And uh, so I, I, fear, uh, I, I fear that they may not go far enough, whereas they are right in relation to the, the ecology and Steinbeck has a different perspective than Jeffers because he emphasizes the individual and he defends the individual. Uh, the, the, the question is in relation to the individual in, in the vertical context, in the transcendental context. It's not, for me, it's not a vague notion. It's not a vague psychological notion. It's not, it's not a vague notion of everyone melting into each other, that we have individual autonomy, which I believe persists and it persists in the spiritual world as well. So, where he stands on that, I don't know. He, he, he would argue that he wasn't trying to answer those questions, uh, but it does raise questions, and it does uh, make me look at uh, so much of what, what Joseph Campbell is actually saying. Is he saying sometimes 
that this is all a construction. It's all a biological construction. It's all a mythic construction, a social construction that recurs, that's embedded in our genes, that's biological. That leads you to a different place than the mystics that say, uh, well, actually, what we're doing is that we are reflecting and communicating with the, the, the greater mind, or what Yeats said, the great memory, the great mind, that we are actually uh, involved in that, or the idea of reception in, in Kabbalah. So, so, so the, the, they're, they're the, the, the contours, I think, uh, which are necessary contrasts to determine uh, what, they do, what they do believe in, and to compare them, and, and to ask, what are the consequences of the different views? Not to say you must believe this thing, but does it lead you to a different uh, different perspective? The last point, because I believe that, for example, issues like AI are issues of mythology, of contemporary mythology, that we don't really, we're not understanding the mythology that we're living by, as, as Jung, Jung suggested, and that um, we have to understand them, to understand our own relationship or not, or what we want as a relationship with the unseen world. I think we have uh, covered Steinbeck that's, uh, from many different perspectives. I think we have a, a good overview of his life and his work and his significance to you and your body of work. I wonder if you have any other final thoughts. The main thing that I, I think about in relation to how this relates to your work is the the issue, which again goes from Greek philosophy, which he was very uh, he was very keen on, and it's implicit in his work, is about how we actually turn all this knowledge into stuff that can help us in the real world. Now, I think the appropriate word for that is phronesis, uh, and that refers to wisdom as applied to practical context. What we're not good at is taking all this vast body of information that we have all these insights from from different people perspectives truths and taking it and transferring it into lived reality now I, I think that that's what steinbeck is pointing to he's pointing to the need to say okay you can have all these great stories but if, if you you're not able to translate that into your own life and into your relationship with others and into your relationship with with animals, uh, with the ecology that you live in, well, it's it's going to fail or it doesn't work. And I think that's a very important point. I, I don't I don't think we're focusing on that because it's too vague. It's too vague for people to understand. Uh, there's loads of people thinking about, you know, do I go off live off grid? How do I solve this problem? Do I grow my own vegetables? You know, what do I do? And it's really that instrumentalization of these insights that we get from a higher dimension is the difficult bit. We're not good about we're not good about that issue. So I think implicit in his work is that call to phronesis or the that call to that type of wisdom that the Greeks knew about about turning all this this stuff that otherwise could be as Steiner would say Luciferian into a practical reality, a practical program beyond our own little our little uh, trepidations and our own little causes. Uh, so that we understand and have a shared view and that shared idea because myths on their own if they're all just a fragmentation a mosaic of individual myths don't have the power to galvanize a society to 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 deal with the problems and we're going to so the so the the king the fisher king 
and Steiner liked fishing a lot as well. He played some of these roles. The Fisher King is us, basically. We're waiting for the, the question to be asked. We're waiting for Percival to ask the right question or someone to ask the right question. So some people do have to ask the right questions and we have to ask the right questions about ourselves. So I think they're the areas that we have to, we have to look at a, a person's life in totality, at their failings. There's arguments about uh, him or criticisms that there were other people that had ideas that he took, like the woman called Sonora Bab, for example, that we could have talked about. There's all these, there's all these failings we can, we can point to in people. But what we have to look at is the gestalt of their life and take from that where they point to and how they help us. And I think he helps us when we look at the gestalt of his work and his failings to point to that there's some core things that we can take and adapt and learn from. So we don't go through a, a learning curve that has been gone through before and we can translate some of the great ideas into practical reality. That's what I would think, Jeff. Well, I will remember that word, phrenesis. That's a, a, a great word. James, once again, this has been a delightful conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to many more with you. Uh, thank you very much. It's always a privilege, and I mean that uh, sincerely. It's always a privilege to talk to you and to expand my own understanding, as I always do when, I, when I'm talking to you and uh, having our conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you, because you are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 